And they even became that eventually. They adapted it to Best Bros. And eventually it even became like them telling each other, hey, if you don't do what I want, I, or want, I won't be your best bro. And then the other one desperately trying to like do what they wanted so they would be the best bro, which are like, this is not exactly the heart of this. But uh, we're at least using the term best bro. And we'll accept it where it is as of now, and we'll, we'll shape it over time. But families, again, fight, and they make up. But what happens when they don't? Acts 15. As we said last week, this is really almost like, there's so many things within a text uh, in a larger book, like the book of Acts, that will almost have like mini-series moments within the chapters that they, the author Luke sets up himself. And Acts 15 is one of them, where he gives two examples of disagreements happening in the church. One through one that we covered last week, which was worked out in a healthy and life-giving and God-honoring way. And then this week is not that one. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take along with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. The first thing that strikes me about this text is that it's only six verses. And in six verses, Luke recounts one of the biggest relational schisms in the early church. I mean, this is Paul and Barnabas. If you've been tracking along in the series, Paul and Barnabas have endured trials together. They have stood up for one another. I mean, you see in chapter 9 when Saul transforms as a transformative experience with Jesus, his renamed Paul, and he shows up to the church in Jerusalem. At first, they want nothing to do with him because, of course, he was just so recently tracking people out of their houses and imprisoning them with hopes to kill them. And it's Barnabas who speaks up for Paul. And he says, no, he, he's experienced something, and we need to listen to him. And he's brought into the church through Barnabas's trust in what he sees in Paul. I mean, later you have Barnabas coming to the city of Antioch, and this was the first church outside of Judea and Samaria that all of a sudden the kingdom and the gospel starts moving in a huge way. And so they go and get Barnabas, and Barnabas sees it, and it says that he's encouraged by the grace that he sees amongst the people in Antioch. And the first thing he does is leaves the city to go and get Paul and bring him back, and he and Paul stay for the next year, discipling, training, and teaching the Antioch brothers and sisters. It's later that prophets come to them at Antioch and say, hey, there's going to be a great famine in Jerusalem, and so all the brothers and sisters in Antioch pray about how they should give generously, and when they eventually do so, they give the money to the Jerusalem church through the hands of Barnabas and Paul, 
who take it there together. And there's even the part in verse 13 where it says that the church in Antioch is praying and fasting and the Spirit delivers a message to them which says, set aside for me Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have for them. Over six verses with sparse detail. All of that in many ways is unraveled. What seems clear is that, again, this is very sparse in its detail. There's much more details to this disagreement, I'm sure. There's much more details of how it was attempted to be worked through, I'm sure. But we don't get that. Again, these men had just been a part of the church who were working through great conflict, fighting for unity, refusing to see eye to eye now with each other, so much so that one goes this way and the other goes the opposite way. And perhaps it's that the details for Luke he just deems as a bit too painful, and he's holding them because he recognizes that this is a big moment and he is still processing it himself. Because he leaves a lot out. But perhaps in that, there's also a universal nature to this story in which Luke is relating to the fact how we all have parted ways with brothers and sisters. We all, and if you haven't yet, probably will very soon at some point in your life, have an experience of disagreement that leads to one or both parties looking at each other and saying, it's time to part ways. Parting ways happens. It also hurts. But it's worthy of our time this morning to meditate on how we think about parting ways, how we act in wisdom in those moments, and how as much as it depends on you and me, how we image Jesus when parting ways happens. So first, uh, let me put a bit of flesh on this story. Again, the details are few, but if we draw from other places of Scripture, we know a bit more of what is going on, at least in these relationships, and the first of which is we are introduced very abruptly to the character of John, who's also called Mark. And Mark was a member of the Jerusalem church. In fact, the story in which Peter is miraculously released from prison and just walks over to a house where the believers are gathered together, that is Mark's mother's house. So he's not only just a believer, he's, his family is central to the leadership and to the beginnings of the early church in Jerusalem. Also, we know this, Mark is Barnabas' cousin. And at some point, Barnabas takes Mark and says, hey, we want you, we're set aside for this work to begin to spread the kingdom and gospel and the church throughout the Gentile world. And whether he convinces him or Mark convinces Barnabas, They decide it'd be a good idea if he came with. And then he goes as far as Cyprus. And at that point, Mark departs from them. And again, we're not exactly sure why, but we know that it frustrates Paul. Enough so that when, in this moment, Barnabas says, hey, let's go and I want to bring Mark again. 
Paul says that's a non-starter for me. The word sharp disagreement, again, is not inaccurate, but probably doesn't quite fulfill all the things of the root word in, in the Greek here, is this concept of sour and bitter wine. There was a sour and bitter wine of a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so they choose to separate. Barnabas and Mark go back to Cyprus and they go on from there. And Paul takes Cyrus, who is another leader of the Jewish church, who'd moved to Antioch to be a part of that movement. And they they start around Syria. And in that you have first Barnabas, who undoubtedly felt some level of familial connection to Mark, who felt a level of maybe extended grace and extra grace that he would give to his cousin. But so much so that he's willing to separate from his companion and one who was called to the ministry with him and Paul. And then you have Paul, whose conviction that Mark's presence would be a cancer to the mission is so strong that again he's willing to separate from the one who'd bridged the gap for him to enter the church the one who had taught and instructed and counseled him the one who had regularly put his reputation on the line for him and then you have Mark who is in one of the most awkward situations in human history and that he is in many ways the reason for the departure of the first missionaries of the church undoubtedly had to sit uneasy with him that we read about this now and meditate upon that he split up the dynamic duo of the church for all of human history but in this we can say a few things that as I've already said you've probably had people part ways from you and you've probably looked at people and parted ways from them and in some ways we can say parting ways happen it happens to the best of us it happens even when both parties are actively seeking the mission of God's will that are seeking the kingdom seeking to grow and know Jesus in their life and others And there's all sorts of reasons why we might part ways. There's sometimes we have disagreements in the church with brothers and sisters that are ultimately theological. The way that you view God and the way that I view God. And in that, most likely what we're having is probably an interpretive difference. I take some part of the scripture, you take maybe the same part of the scripture or another part of the scripture, and we come to a different interpretation ultimately of who God is and what he is calling calling of us. Sometimes we have separation and disagreements over ministry practices or ministry philosophy. We ultimately believe the same things, but we have a different way of how we think it should be best lived out and worked out in our lives or in a church body's life. We can have disagreements over expressions of worship, the way in which you choose to interact with God and commune with him. I cannot partake in. I feel offends the conscience in some way, or maybe even I feel like disrespects God. Sometimes it's that we have just different visions and emphases in our lives. We have a different vision of what we feel God is calling us to do, what he feels like he's calling our, our, our community to. 
Or again, sometimes it's not even so much a difference of vision. It's within that vision. You emphasize something a little bit more strongly than someone else. Ultimately, there's not enough detail in this story to say who was right or wrong or if there even was a right or wrong. Or if this was simply a case where you had two people both holding on to a piece of truth, unable to reconcile and ultimately parting ways. We have to recognize that in order to be a family and to be a body, and not only a body, but a body of diverse members, diverse members of people with diverse gifts from diverse backgrounds, which is ultimately what we've said we pray for and work toward. And even in many ways in this moment, exist in some ways a level of diverse perspective, diverse giftings, diverse visions for what we see forward and what the Spirit is calling us to. And so in order to gather a group of people who have different visions, thoughts, ideas, theologies, interpretations, and put them together, there is inevitably going to be conflict. There's inevitably going to be moments where we say, I see differently than you, and I'm concerned that this may affect our relationship or may even separate it and cut it off. And when it happens, we do our best as those in the family to work it out. Again, we don't have details of what happened here. But we do have the words of Paul in places like Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Let me read those. Colossians 3 verse 11 says this. Here there's no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. As a prisoner for the Lord, I love how Paul starts it that way. Hey, I'm in chains right now, so really take what I'm saying seriously as somebody who believes this with a lot of conviction. As a prisoner for the Lord, what do I want you to hear? I urge you to live a life worthy to the calling you have received, which sounds daunting, but he lays it out. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. And we can go through other letters, but you'll eventually come to the same conclusion as I'll do, that Paul dedicates a significant portion of his letter space, which was not a cheap thing to write or to produce, to the concept of bearing with one another, binding things together with patience, humility, and seeking, even it says, making every effort to preserve the bond of peace. Because ultimately he's talking to churches that, I mean, they were bringing 
Jews and Gentiles together to be in fellowship with one another. And regardless of whatever dichotomy of two groups you feel like we have in this nation at this time, there is nothing that quite comes close to holding a candle to the division between the Jews and Gentiles. And the many other diverse groups of people, and he's bringing them to say, hey, these are true about your identity. These are true about who you are and your perspective and your giftings. And he doesn't trivialize them. He's going to also spend a lot in the book of Corinthians to say, hey, what you bring, even in Ephesians, he says, hey, every one of you has a piece of God's grace and God's spirit, and that there's a, necess a necessity of you being a body in which you bring your uniqueness. You bring your diversity, and you bring it in unity. God himself depicts, him this way, depicts himself this way in Genesis when he makes man and, and woman, makes male and female in his image, and he says they will be unified together. Why? Because I am unity. I am diversity. Nobody can depict that except for my image on earth. And that's the funny thing is a lot of times in our disagreements, a lot of times in our different emphases, our different interpretations, it's actually, as Paul said at the end of Ephesians 4, verse 7 there, he says, like, each one of you has a piece of God's grace. He's going to go on to talk about different giftings and how they're used to build up the body into full maturity. And a lot of times when people have a disagreement, often if there's a third party that's able to observe it, not always, but often, it comes on some level of a difference of their gifting. Because your gifting highly tends to influence the way that you interpret and see things. Uh, there's a whole host of giftings, but just to pick maybe obvious ones, if you, are, if you have a teaching gifting, if you believe passionately in people understanding who God is, what, how he's communicated and revealed himself in scripture, you tend to very rightly highly value truth, highly value the communication of that truth, highly value people understanding it and coming into relationship with God rightly and not in a way with how he hasn't revealed himself. Differently and equally, if you have a shepherding gifting, one who tends to look and care for lost and broken sheep, one who tends to regularly be scanning the crowd to say, who can I encourage? Who can I come alongside? Who can I bear the burden, bind up the wounds, and feed and care for? You might have very much so a strong connection to truth and people worshiping and understanding and relating to God as who he is, but you probably primarily recognize relational aspects of the body, of who God is, showing God through relationship. Neither of you are wrong, but there are times where we can be at such odds of which to prioritize in a given moment that you look at the other and says, I'm not even sure if you're a Christian in this moment. And it's good in this moment of a moment of sobriety, hopefully for all of you. I don't know, maybe I've already triggered some of you, but either way, if you are not and you are sober, it's good for in this moment to recognize that's a wrong way of viewing God. That's a wrong way of viewing the body. And so we... As Paul said, seek with all that we have, earnestly preserving the bond of peace.
But as we said, parting happens. The Bible is very, very gracious to depict not just the world as it should be, but the world as it exists. The church not just as it should be, but the church as you actually experience it. And so in moments, and we've had moments here at Soma, where we have parted ways with people, where people have parted ways with us. I have had people look at me and say, it's time to part ways. And I have looked people dead in their eye and said, I'm parting ways with you. And that's true. And when that happens, I mean, Sharon and myself can attest, Tim and Julie, John and Ashley, Dante and Bree, many others of you, and missional community leaders can attest. We attempt as, with all that we can, imperfectly, to try to do what we can to preserve the bond of peace, to attempt to reconcile differences, to, re to hear where disagreements are had. And I will admit there are times where I have done that with a level of grace and honor and respect, and other times a level of frustration and disrespect. There's ways where I've let emotions get a hold of me too much. I've felt under, misunderstood at times in those conversations. And I'm sure that many would look and say, I feel like Kent, Sharon, whoever they were talking with, they just didn't fully understand what we were saying. I felt frustrated by relationships getting brought in and collateral damage by people spreading a level of disunity, but then at the same time, again, people would probably say there's moments where I've done that as well. I'll say this too, a lot of times when we have that conversation with people, a common theme that often arises is this, is again, we've listened, we've heard, they've listened, they've heard, and ultimately they, are, they say, we're parting ways, and that's what we hear. And we say, hey, apparently this is the last conversation, but this should have been the first conversation. And we want to say that regularly, that if you're here and you have parts or things that you see, that you observe, that you want to talk about in leadership, you will not be turned down for that conversation. It might need to be put out on the schedule. It might have to get, you know, there, it might not happen in the timing or everything, but it will be had. And we, there's sometimes a sense of, I don't want to be the squeaky wheel. I don't want to be the one to disrupt peace in some ways. But instead, it's internalizing such a level of bitterness and grumbling that, that something grows that ultimately what should be the first conversation must be the last. And I also say in this moment as I look out over the crowd, many of you who have done this, who have come to us, who have allowed us to listen and hear, have allowed us to own and apologize, have allowed us to clarify and explain. And we have maintained the bond of peace. And I commend you for that. And I invite you, if you are there, where you're saying, I, I just don't want to bring this up, please, bring this up. Do everything to maintain the bond of peace. And some of that sometimes is not faking that there is peace when there's not. And as we said, or as I've said here, 
Parting ways, though, in reality, does sometimes happen. And it does hurt. A lot of times this story gets pitched with kind of that gospel spin of like, well, but Paul went one way and Barnabas went the other way. And it multiplied the output of the mission and the church expanded all the more. And there was a redemptive edge to that. Yes and amen. But God does not need to work through that measure or that way. He just often shows I can take brokenness, sin, pain, and what is less than I have called you to and create out of it beauty and joy. I can create a redemptive edge out of anything. So yes, praise God and amen that he did that. However, the same thing at the same time, Paul and Barnabas weren't just missionary robots. That one went the one way, the other went the other way, and they just continued on without a level of hurt and loss. And so when it happens, when it does hurt, when there's been every effort to maintain the bond of peace, we have to ask ourselves, if this is maybe not ideal but is real, how do we as a people part well? And in this, of course, I'm not talking about the many of you who are like, oh, I'm sorry, I just have a residency. I'm only here for a time. God bless you. We send you out with love and joy. Uh, ultimately, I think you obviously are already picked up on the, more of the relational schism that we're talking about here. But how do we part in those moments as far as it depends on us? Well, how do we absorb and bear with it and endure? As those are what Paul calls us to even when the person or you are not immediately in the vicinity of one another or the groups are not within the vicinity of one another anymore. I'll say two things. The first is that we have to have a deep humility to constantly and consistently have measures to check ourselves. In the moment of a disagreement, it is almost impossible to come to the point of what is the other person actually trying to say? Where do they have a legit point? What can be taken from this? And what can we be edified in together? Because in the moment, it's really easy to take maybe the ways that they're not right or the ways that they've handled it immaturely and hold that up as a shield to become really sure of myself and to be really sure of what the part of truth that I have. And again, a lot of times we're both holding on to a piece of truth. And so I can sit there and dig deeper into that piece of truth and say, well, they are not getting this. And until they get it, I have no obligation from God to move away from this piece of truth. Which, no, I don't have an obligation to move away from truth, but I do have an obligation to pursue after a brother and sister and to understand what piece of truth might they be holding on to. That we're both holding a piece. You see, I think in a level, Paul do this. You see Paul in his time and in his experience write things like in Colossians 4, in 2 Timothy 4, let me read those to you. These are both the ends of his letters, and he's writing at the end when he's writing all those lists of names, tell this person hi, care for this person, encourage this person, and a lot of times you just skip that because you're like, what, you know, how am I supposed to like, get, you know, how's this going to affect 2021 for me today? 
But there's real power sometimes when you read through all the stories and you recognize the names that are in here. And so in Colossians 4, it says this, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. And then 2 Timothy 4, this is the last book that we know that, that Paul wrote very close to the end of his life, likely. And it, a lot of ways you, come, you get to read the reflections of somebody who has given their life to this and is now coming to the end of it and trying to come to an end well, reconcile the, that fact. And he writes this at the end of the letter. He says, do your best to come to me quickly, writing to Timothy, of course. For Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has also gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. And both of these pictures are really beautiful because they show a man again at the end of his life or wrestling through some of maybe the mistakes he's recognizing that he's made. And the great irony, though he cast out Mark for deserting him, now in a moment where he feels completely deserted is actually calling for Mark. He's sending letters to people saying, hey, you may, have, may not welcome Mark because you may have heard the disagreement we had over him. That's not what I'm calling you to do. I love Mark and you should welcome him. Maybe Mark grew up. Maybe Mark gained a piece of maturity, came back and apologized. Maybe Paul just saw things differently. Maybe what was at one point so black and white to him became a bit more nuanced. He looked at Mark's life and maybe understood some of the decisions that he made and the reasons that he made them. We don't know ultimately how they came to this moment, but we do see the power of two men who, again, one of the biggest schisms of the church history happens because of one of them, and yet here is Paul advocating, caring, sending for one. He's a comfort to me. He's useful for me in the ministry. You got to check yourself, not just when the argument's going on, but maybe even for the following months, years after, because sometimes what once felt really black and white becomes less so after a few experiences. I know of no human being that has endured a season of suffering and held on to Jesus that has come out of that with the same level of razor-sharp clarity of everything. But rather, I see a lot of people begin to walk a lot more humbly, start to recognize, yeah, there's things that I hold on to dearly, but there's also ways that I'm willing to be proved wrong. I've I've found myself to be wrong before. I've found myself to be weaker than I once thought. I've found the grace of God to be much more of my need than I once thought it was. And therefore, I'm a bit easier to extend it to others. I had an experience with um, a mentor 
early in my faith and early from graduating from school. And um, I have no problem talking directly about it because of our relationship now is uh, a pastor at Common Ground, Jim Mathias. He was a deep mentor to me. Uh, my wife and I were at Common Ground for several years. Uh, he invested much time in me. He invested a lot of his life in me. And there came a time where me being immaturely overly focused on very specific applications of a theological principle that I eventually said to him, we need to part ways. And we shed tears over that. And it came maybe five to six years later, after a bit of a season of some suffering and some clarity for me, that I recognized we probably still didn't see eye to eye in the practical outworking of that theological reality. But I had wrongly parted ways with him. So I emailed him. And I sat down with him. And I apologized to him. And I said, though God has done much redemptive work through our parting of ways, I was wrong. And thank you for what you've invested in me. And through God's grace, he continues to be in my life in a mentor relationship to this day. We get together maybe just three or four times a year, but man, when we, get, we end up spending hours together. There's ways that he's continuing to sharpen me and giving me perspective. There's ways that I, I'm sure he would say I've encouraged him with growth, maturity, and ways that I've seen him and, and honored and blessed him in times when I can. Because ultimately, that's the second area that I think we do this and do it well as much as it depends on us. We constantly are checking our perspective. And then we seek to honor and bless the other, regardless of if they do it in return. Regardless of if you ultimately feel burned and ultimately just feel a level of scorched earth coming from that direction. You see in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing, and he is talking about this concept of if those who labor for the kingdom and the gospel should be paid or not, and whether they should be cared for by the church who they are caring for. And in the midst of examples, he says at one point, he brings up Barnabas as an example to instruct people of Barnabas and give a clear example of like, look at Barnabas. Can you look at somebody who's worked for you like Barnabas and say he doesn't deserve care and, and when he's struggling, somebody to care for him? And this is after the time in Acts and it, it just seems to be a picture where Paul intentionally brings this man's name to honor and to bless him. This is one of the most impactful things that I've learned when it comes to actually forgiving people, not just reconciling with them, though it also can do that, but just forgiving people. If you really want 
to root out bitterness. And you have to want to, because let's face it, a lot of people, we want to, but we don't really want to. It's our precious. And if you actually get to the point where you realize it's you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, and that it's continually leaving you a burnt out shell of a person, and you are actually able to move, you, if you want to move, here's the number one practical place to begin to move. Find a way to bless the other person. Find a way to get on social media, a call, a text, an email, send something, maybe something not even directly to them. You're communicating with other people and honoring them publicly. Maybe they get her back from it. Hopefully they do. I have found there is something powerful. It doesn't take the bitterness and just make it shrivel in a moment, but it's more like a knot that you feel it just so ever so slightly loosen. And each instance of blessing often has the same effect. It's almost as if God has designed us to not be able to hold on to bitterness towards someone and bless them at the same time. That the act of blessing is choosing to repel, repel out the root of bitterness, even just a chip that can lead to another and another and more traction over time and years and choosing to forgive and re-choosing to bless. Again, my conversation with Jim, one of my more recent ones, where I was again just, it was just coming up again and again where I was just like saying, yeah, I own that that was just the wrong way to handle it. And he stopped me and he said, I think it's really clear that God has called you to Soma. I think it's really clear that he is doing great works of the kingdom through you and through your work and through your family. And I could look back to him and said, thank you, and I, I, I hold that and I'm appreciative of that. And I also recognize the reality that God has redeemed something that I did wrong. But his blessing of me, times where I've just gotten opportunities to publicly bless him and often send him the recording and say, hey man, thanks again. are ways to continue to, again, not only root it out the root of bitterness for yourself, but also do a long ways to maybe extend a bridge for whenever that person feels ready. Maybe you reconcile and preserve the relationship, maybe you don't, but I will guarantee that you will have a much higher chance if you have a track record of blessing them. The application of today is clear. Who are you thinking of? Maybe no one yet. Praise God that you have, at this moment, not lived long enough to have this happen to you. But uh, you will, and file this away. Put this in the back drive, you know, whatever. Background app, keep it open. But who does come to mind? Is it someone that you need to call? You need to text? Maybe that's not the first step. Maybe the first step is going to someone who is wise in counsel, who loves you enough to be honest with you and say, this is the bitterness I'm feeling for this person and allowing them to pray for, encourage you through that. That's a lot of times how you're going to check your perspective. You're just like, I'm mad at this person, and I feel like I got righteous anger right back at them all the time. And often it's going to be a third party of someone who you trust enough to listen to, and also they love you enough to encourage you where you're right 
and to encourage you to see where you're wrong. And so who do you need to reach out to? Maybe it's not directly that person. Maybe it's someone you trust to, to talk through, pray through. I mean, we don't work through these things alone. Christianity, shaping ourselves into Jesus, cannot and will not happen alone. So how can we, in the relationships of the brothers and sisters we do have, seek to preserve the bond of peace, even across distance and across a level of dysfunction? Because ultimately, as I said, we not only do this not alone because we do it with the brothers and sisters, but we also do this as a part of being in the power of the Spirit that we serve and follow and shape ourselves into a God who has experienced those separating from him. He's experienced his creation separating from him, who he loved and created to be in relationship with him. In fact, when he tells a parable at one point as he walks this earth as Jesus, man, and God in the flesh, he tells a story about a son who looks at his dad and says, I would like all my inheritance now because you're as good as dead to me, and goes and lives the way that he wants. And it depicts a father who has his eyes on the horizon. And when he sees his son who has foolishly squandered his wealth and is coming back to hopefully just be able to survive by going to a father who he hopes will have enough mercy on him to take him in depicts a father running and pursuing after that separated relationship and again maybe it's something where now you're in two different zip codes and two different time zones or two different continents or whatever but there can still and and you can be at two different churches two different fellowships of Jesus that are shaping themselves in the image of each other as my example is and still find ways to say how can we preserve the bond of peace in the capital C church in the larger body that all the micro pieces of the body are forming themselves into and will be all around the throne in unison one day singing glory and praises to our God so who do you need to call or who do you say man that's probably more their bitterness than mine right now but maybe I can bless them Maybe I can send a flare, send, extend a hand or a rope to say, hey, if you want to start building a bridge out of this, I'm willing to start building too. And so in that power of the spirit, we often reflect that in the moment of communion. As Tayshon so wisely instructed you to grab before we got to this moment but there's still some. Either way, the moment of communion is the moment of a covenant meal that is reminding us that though we are the creation that looked at God and said, we need to part ways, and yet have now reconciled to him to be sons and daughters, and that we as a body and often ways maybe we exist in this place with people who have offended one another who have wronged one another and let's believe it if we are a family we definitely should be sinning against each other not that you should be sinning just we should be close enough because you are sinning for it to hit each other sometimes and that we've been reconciled back to one another and that also it represents something that the church has done throughout space and time to remember that you are also in fellowship and union with brothers and sisters who are not currently 
And so we extend and unify with them in this moment, in this meal. So let's take together the bread that is Christ's body, broken for you and the church universal. And a cup representing Christ's blood poured out for you to reconcile you to God and to the church in all times and place. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for your spirit of conviction to be kind and clear. To not bring nebulous guilt where it does not need to exist, but to bring specific, clear conviction where there's places where we can say, I can reconcile with that person well, or I can extend blessing to it, hopes, preserve the relationship, or to continue to either root out bitterness or to be proactive and to seal up against bitterness that often can can regrow back like a weed. And that we can eagerly preserve the bond of peace. But when it is not, we can, as far as it depends on us, continue to part ways in a way that reflects you, in a way that continually remembers that regardless of if we reconcile or not, we can be brothers and sisters. And one day you will put to death all the roots of bitterness in our hearts as you are continually doing now. In Jesus' name, amen.